going to continue, and, it's, and while it's going to seem that we have shifted gears into another concept or another point in, in Peter, we really have not. We are going to be shifting in and speaking for the next several weeks upon the Word of God, uh, specifically, uh, but it is always in reference to what we studied last week, and that is the purification of our souls and to have pure hearts. This is the, the, the means by which we see this work of the purifying of our souls and hearts uh, accomplished, is as we engage these things. So we're going to be taking some time, because Peter takes some time here, to talk about our relationship uh, with the Word of God and our relationship with each other. And so as a quick review, I want to go a little bit further. I, I looked through some of my, my uh, information from last week and realized that I didn't really uh, touch on one point, and that was I certainly spent a lot of time on the two different words for purity, and hopefully we established that, that we have both of these call, we are called to, that we have a purity in terms of, a, of not, no contaminants in our life. The purification of our soul is about the removal of the stain of sin, of that um, evil, of that darkness, that we have that uh, taken away by the redemptive work of the, of the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, and certainly that is, is entailed there, and that is that first word of purity. But we also have a pure heart that is undivided, unmixed, that it is singular. It is for God and God alone, and we love one another out of that pure heart. And we spend a lot of time on those two words of purity. What I, and while I address very quickly the concepts of love presented here and defined it, uh, what I did not talk about was the two different words here. And once again, we come into everywhere at time you see uh, something that refers to love of brother and love for the brother and brotherly love, you should automatically understand that that is the word phileo in the Greek. We get Philadelphia, city of brotherly love from that. Uh, and then we have a different word later on in this, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, uh, for love, which is uh, agape, which is the command and I, and I want to take you back several months ago uh, to John and remind you when Peter was engaged with Jesus Christ, we talked about how only in modern days have we flipped the concept of phileo and agape as one being a higher one and one being a lesser one. And, but uh, rather what we see historically is the other way around. And thus we find that we are called to have brotherly love, that is phileo, um, which in the Greek mind was the highest. I know we have many modern commentators that make it a secondary one uh, to agape, uh, but that again is just really a modern creation in the last 100, 120 years. You go back into commentaries beyond that, you'll find it much reversed, and then you get into the ancient writings it is very strongly reversed. And so the phileo, why is that a stronger love? Because it's a commitment love that is irregardless of passion. And agape is often associated with passionate love. Uh, holistic, yes. Complete commitment, yes. But with a passion for it. And so when we come to 
phileo, it is passionless. It is a commitment with no exception. Uh, you, can, you can hit me, strike me, uh, do all of this, and I will love you still. Uh, and whether it might not be as passionately, because I might not like you today, but I will still be committed to you. Where agape love calls us to a passionate one. And so when we come to this development, we come to these verses, and we have a very different concept than maybe some of the modern uh, preachers and commentators are going to present. That we are going from a lesser to a greater love here. We are commanded to go from a lesser phileo love to a greater agape love. And I'm not sure that that's really reflected in the text. And when you read some of the early church fathers and their handling of these texts, both in John, here in Peter, as well as in Thessalonians, that we're going to be looking at shortly, we find that they have a very different view. The view is, is that we automatically, and yes, automatically, as a condition of our being saved ones, understand loving one another on a level of I am committed to you no matter what. And we talked about that last week. Unconditional commitment to the welfare or the benefit of others. And we recognize that I am the recipient of God's unconditional love. He loved me when I was a sinner. And it was, and he sent and made provision to meet my need of salvation uh, even while I continued to be his enemy. Not because he hated me, because I hated him. And it was unreciprocated, and yet it was love. And he loved us in that fashion. And now, in addition to that, not only that initial commitment, but the action of it and the passion involved in that. And so it is a combination of these. When we come to our understanding of our salvation, it is impossible in biblical writers' minds to receive the love of God and not with it receive an understanding that we love one another on a phileo level, that we are all brothers in Christ, that we are now blood relatives one with another. The blood of Jesus Christ is what makes us that, not the blood of the flesh that we're going to talk about uh, I hope I get to it today. Uh, we're going to be talking about not the blood of flesh, as Jesus Christ said, but, but a different one, that we have a, a stronger relationship than just flesh and blood. And we referenced that last week as well. And so this is really just kind of a review to help you. Uh, we didn't, I didn't reference these two words at all last week, and I wanted to make sure we began there to understand we are moving from here you understand a necessity of love. Because you are recipients of God's love, that these are your brothers in Christ. What the command then is that we take that and not, uh, not to disconnect it from uh, all that it entails, but encompass it and add to it. That we add to it this passionate love. That we are not going to just do this um, because we have to, because it's a theological point in my mind that these are my brothers in Christ. But I'm going to add to that uh, a passionate love for you. That is, not, not in terms of a, of a, between a man and a wife, uh, that, that's a different Greek word actually, but it is a passionate commitment that I'm going to go overboard in trying to demonstrate and express my phileo love. I am going, and so the command is that you already understand, you already have this concept because you're a believer. Now, add some passion to it. <laughs> Put it into practice. 
Give it some hands and feet, as we might say. Uh, put, it in, put some traction in it in your life and say, I'm not just going to give verbal assent to this and acknowledgement mentally to this. I'm going to add a passionate resolve to this. That these are my brothers in Christ. That yes, I love the Lord more than I love my physical family. And dare I even interject that I love my spiritual family greater than I love my physical family when they are distinguishable from each other. That this is what we are called to. And Jesus Christ reminds us that when we get into the testimony of Christ about the end times, one of the things he says that will happen uh, really throughout the church age is that the ones that might be some of the most dangerous to you in terms of your fleshly life, are your fleshly relations, who think they are doing a service to God by turning you into your authorities because of your belief system. Because ultimately it is not our flesh and blood that defines us anymore in terms of the physicality. And we talk about blood relations, that I have this physical connection to them, um, which is... An, which, which uh, is not of your choice, correct? Uh, your physical relations are not of your choice. You didn't choose who your relatives are going to be. You never did, uh, other than your wife. You chose her, uh, and the two become one flesh, and, and a fascinating mystery there. Uh, but here we have a relationship of choice of the application of the blood of Christ that I choose to put into me, and now this defines me. And it's very interesting to look historically uh, in biblical times, not only in the New Testament, in the church age, but even in the Old Testament, that when people come into this committed relationship, that they want to do something uh, public. You know what that is? They change their name. They would change their name. Why would you change your name? And by the way, in some countries, that's still done today is that they change their name once they become a believer because they recognize that now I, I'm no longer defined by the name for me, Westlink. Westlink is my family name. But that no longer is important to me. Now those who do genealogies and such, that's very important. They're going to find their lineage, their physical lineage, and that's uh, fine and good. Uh, to me, I, I don't get that. I'm not that excited about it. Maybe because my lineage is speckled with weirdness, but um, <laughs> that's untraceable. Uh, but uh, it's not that important because that no longer defines me. The term Westlink isn't a definition of who I am. The term follower of Christ is. That is who I am. Maybe I should go and get to the Department of Social Security and start saying that, uh, uh, call me Kirk Christian or something along that line, uh, and changed my name. Because that's who, what defines me is Jesus Christ, my relationship with him. That's who I am. And so we can go through and we can make much ado about our last names, and we're trying to carry on and saying this defines who I am. My name defines me. And this is important in Scripture because we use the names of God to define him. Your name defines you. And... New Testament people understood that and they often changed their name when they made this commitment to Christ so that they could say, I am redefined. 
This is who I am now. And it's more precious to me than these familial fleshly relationships is this one. And so we, we lay that foundation last week. That's all review. Let's press on now. And we skipped one little phrase in verse 22 that we're going to pick up on in relationship to what we're also going to be seeing in verse 23. There is a basis of our loving one another. And remember, we're laying foundation stones here. And that first foundation stone is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, that he has purified us, removed that sin stain, and that we now have an opportunity to have a single-heartedness for him. Not divided allegiance, not a mixture in our hearts, um, but pure hearts. And so how is this accomplished? Uh, We're going to see two things working in tandem together. And if you divorce one from the other, you will always get in trouble. If you do not have both of these working simultaneously, you will be out of sync and will be in danger of heretical beliefs or heretical practices, and usually both. Here are these two that Peter links together here. He links together through the Spirit in verse 22, and then he adds through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. You see, the, the, and our translators tried to communicate this through, through the Spirit, through the Word of God. So we have these two descriptions of our born-againness, of our purification, that these two entities in our sanctification, that is bringing our position into reality and in, in living, is, is accomplished through the Spirit of God and through the Word of God working together. Now, what happens if you try to do one without the other? If you try to study God's Word without the Holy Spirit, what are you going to end up doing to God's Word? You're going to pervert it, always, because you're going to insert your thinking into it. You're going to turn it upside down and backwards and inside out. You're going to destroy its purpose and meaning. And we have ample proof of that over the last 2,000 years and even beyond, even in Jesus' day. That was the condition because they went to God's word, all those Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, experts in God's word, but without the Holy Spirit perverted it and God condemned them. Jesus Christ called them whitewashed sepulchers. You brood of vipers, you are the blind leading the blind. And you thought Jesus only spoke nicely. (laughs) He called them names. Imagine. Because it was true. When you study God's word without the Holy Spirit, you will always pervert it. Similarly, if you're focusing in on Holy Spirit without studying the word, you will pervert him. You will pervert him. Always. And this is what we see in those that emphasize this Holy Spirit activity disassociated from God's word and even um, <laughs> not only neglecting God's word but, but turning away from God's word. The God's word isn't sufficient. And we have the entire Pentecostal movement uh, in modern times that has done exactly that. They have so focused on Holy Spirit and ignored God's word and they do this Holy Spirit activity without reference and without obedience to God's word and it is a perversion. You must have these both together to get it right. Always. 
This is why when you open God's word, you surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit, you ask for his help, you pray, you, you seek his guidance, not just the guidance of other people, and, and, but, and, but you seek his guidance to guard us. Lord, guard us. Guard my mind. Guard my life. Because I don't want to be at either one of these two extremes, which are, which are the same, which are in the same problem. You emphasize the Holy Spirit and you ignore God's word, and you start thinking, "I am getting prophecies from the Holy Spirit, and that trumps God's word." Well, you're no different than the Catholics that have the Word of God being the third authority: first the Pope, then Church tradition, then the Bible. You're no different because most of our Pentecostals are out there saying, well, we have modern prophets and prophecies and tongues and they come before God's word and authority and we end up in trouble. This is where their empty practices come from. Are they very experiential? Yes. Are they excited? Oh, yes. But do they promote the principles of God's word? No. They simply don't. Some of the, your Bibles, if you have different trans, translations, different versions of the, it's all English translation. If you have different versions, they will actually leave out the words through the Spirit. They're not there. And this is a mistake. And that's why I prefer here in the King James, New King James in those traditions to include this phrase. Because you cannot put Spirit and Word and separate them. Or you will pervert both. Now, this isn't just Peter saying this, by the way. Okay? This is not just Peter's concept. Let's look at it a little bit. And uh, the, the wonderful thing about Scripture is it should agree, right? Let's go to 1 Thessalonians. I mentioned it earlier. Let's go there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is Pauline doctrine now, and you're going to find almost the identical concepts, and then we're going to go into Hebrews, and we're going to go into the Old Testament. So we want to pull this all together, if I have time, we'll see. Uh, I would, uh, I, I, let's, let's read a whole bunch of chapter 4. It's always better to read God's Word and hear what I have to say anyway. Uh, verse 1. Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort, Lord Jesus, that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And sanctification, we talked about in Peter's words, would be, be holy as I am holy. Be set apart. The word sanctification is the root word. Uh, at, at its root is the word holy. Be sanctified. Be set apart. So when Peter says, be holy, um, Paul says, be sanctified. Here's your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. You see it there? Be holy, be sanctified. Therefore, he rejects us, does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And here we go. Here we, here we are. Verse 9. 
But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brother, you increase more and more. You also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack Nothing, but we do not want you to be ignorant, brother, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We're going to stop there, and it gets exciting about the coming of the Lord, but let's stop right there for a moment. We have again the introduction of the Holy Spirit. Notice the little phrase here in reference to brotherly love. Again, phileo, you see brother and love together closely linked in a verse. That's one Greek word of Phileo, this high love. Do you notice Paul's expectation is, I didn't have to teach you that. As soon as you receive Christ, you should understand that. Why? Because you are taught by God. That's one Greek word also. Taught by God. Theos didactikos. What's one of those? I got to think about the spelling a little bit. Didact. Taught by God. Paul says, I didn't teach you that. I've taught you things, and he's referenced all of his teaching, hasn't he? As I taught you, as I taught you, as I taught you, as I taught you. But there's one thing I didn't really teach you. That you should have brotherly love for each other. That God taught you. And it's no mistaking that he references the Holy Spirit at the end of verse 8. And we come to verse 9, he says, you have been taught by God to love one another. And again, we are moving from phileo to agape. <laughs> that you are taught by God. You have brotherly love. You are taught by God to increase it more and more. That is, make it a greater and greater passion of your life to show love to one another. When you get into God's word and you are taught it with the Holy Spirit, it will always drive you to a greater passion for service, for servicing God's people, for loving one another more and more. Not just to understand it and recognize it, but to be compelled to engage in it on every level possible. I don't want to just sit back here and, and know that these are my brothers in Christ. I want to prove it every day. I am passionate about that. It is part of defining who I am. I am a follower of Jesus Christ, which means that as he served all men with the gospel, with the provision of redemption, so I am going to serve all men with the message of the gospel and with the message of of teaching them to observe whatsoever he has commanded us. And Paul, over and over again, throughout this passage, talks about, we taught you these commandments, we taught you these things, we taught you these things, we taught you these things, but you also have the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit and the commandments should go together, and they should produce a greater passion for loving one another. And we have the exact same concepts all put together here in 1 Thessalonians 4 by Paul to encourage and to uh, drive his people to love one another more and more. 
And really we could go back into chapter 3 and see it as well. We're at the end of chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. He also, I want you to love one another. Take the commandments, take the Holy Spirit, bring them into tandem in your life, and the end result will be a passionate commitment, agape, to your phileo, your brotherly love. Not an improvement, but an ex, an ex, a, fill, a fullness of it. That we're putting fullness to our brotherly love. And this is what is engaged in. But let, you know, it's so good. Let's back up. I should have probably started in verse 11 of chapter 3. Let's read these three verses at the end. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Uh, and here's the key one. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And this is really the connecting verse of how we take verses, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 and connect it to 13 and following. How does it connect to the coming of Christ? I'm going to abound in my love for the brethren more and more and more because I have a passion for Christ's coming and I recognize that we are going to be going together as a unit with all the saints. <laughs> That's who is incorporated in the coming of Christ. That we're going to be gathered, and so I'm not just concerned about making sure I stand. I am passionate about making sure that we all stand, because I want you all to make it. Paul wanted all the Thessalonian Christians to participate. He didn't want any of them to miss out. He wanted all the Ephesian Christians to participate. He wanted all the Philippian Christians. To, he wrote these letters because he didn't want any of them to miss out. Now in Philippians, he does tell us, well, because I'm, I'm making sure of myself too, because I don't want to miss out. And so I want, I, I'm crucifying the flesh. I, I'm, I'm passionate about applying the power of the resurrection to my life. Uh, and he says other places, lest having taught others, I become disqualified. So it's not that he's disinterested in his own spiritual growth, but he recognizes that his love for the brothers, I don't want anyone to miss it. And then he adds another category up there, and that is to those who are outside. I don't really want anyone, period, to miss it. Even Democrats. I had to throw that in there nowadays. I don't want anyone to miss it. We need to see them come to Christ. Whether they're communists, socialists, oligarchs, whatever. Even demo democracyites, democratics. We want them all. And so... This passion drives us into ministry. When we have passionless phileo, we are comfortable in participating. And it's, but it's not defining. We understand it. We are taught it by God. We know, I know that, that these are my brothers in Christ. And one day we're going to be in heaven together. And we'll all get along there. And, and I know that, that I should, I have this, communion, and we're going to participate in the Lord's table tonight, that we have this unity around the Lord's table, that he, we have all of the same Savior. We have all, and that's great, and you were taught that by God, and praise the Lord for that. But now let's put it, some passion into it. And that's what it means, that we grow more and more in this, that we extend it further and further. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. 
Hebrews chapter 8. And again, this connection of using of having the Holy Spirit with God's word to invoke in us the passion of phileo love, passion for it. Let's begin in verse 7. Uh, for if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. This is the argument from Hebrews for the better covenant with a better uh, sacrifice, a better uh, high priest, all of these things. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Here we go, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant has made the first obsolete Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This promised ultimate fulfillment is really in the millennial kingdom. But what the writer of Hebrews and many other New Testament writers, pretty much all of them, including Jesus Christ himself, understand that there is a fulfillment of this within the church as well. That we have the teaching, we are God-taught Well, how are we God-taught? We are God-taught through the ministry of Holy Spirit and His Word. We bring these two together, and then we are God-taught. Now, does that mean I I can work myself out of a job because all of you are (laughs) God-taught? No. Uh, There's a role there for pastor-teachers. But again, if I try to teach you without the help of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be a complete act of frustration. And that's why a lot of pastors get frustrated. Because they want to teach in their own wisdom, strength, capacities, abilities. And it's frustrating. Why don't they get it? Well, I'm not concerned about that. Because the ones who are in tune with the Holy Spirit and committed to God's word will get it. They just will. They'll be God taught. I can lead you to that, but ultimately I can't put any teaching that I have in my mind and put it into your mind with that commitment. I can't do it. But the Spirit is able to move. If we surrender ourselves to the Spirit, now I am saying, your will be done, not mine, and now the Spirit can teach me all things. This should all sound very familiar because I think pretty much all of you were here when we were studying the Gospel of John, right? And Jesus speaks about this multiple times. Let's go to a couple of those in in the Gospel of John, just as a good long-term review from way, way, way back when we were studying the Gospel of John. Let's let's go to John chapter 6, and we'll look at um, how do we know the truth. And, of course, this is in connection with the... um, Question from the disciples of John. So let's pick up in verse 
31. This is a little added. I wasn't going to do this, but I think I will. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you are willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified to me. You have neither heard his voice any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another? Do not seek the honor that comes that comes from the only God. Do not think I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, you will not believe my words. You see, access to God's word is not enough. For all of these men Jesus is talking to had access to his word, but they did not mix it with submission to the Holy Spirit. And so God, Jesus gives a promise. Let's go to John chapter 16. And we have the passage about uh, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in verses 8 and following. Uh, I really want to pick up in verse 12. It says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And so we come to this, this cooperative work where we have the word of God combined with the power and the, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our life and in our mind, and we come to truth. This is how he guides us into truth. To guard us against error, to guard us against the philosophy of this world, and it is not an easy endeavor. This is not an, a, a, a simple work of the Holy Spirit. It is perhaps his most challenging work that he has to engage in on earth, is to get humans to empty uh, of our own philosophies and to uh, permit him full access to our faculties that we might understand God's word. And I'm not talking about emptying your mind in some Eastern mystic way. I'm talking about submitting our preconceived notions of what God's word is supposed to say and say, Lord, I want the pureness of your word, which is going to come out here later on, uh, in First Peter, of course, it ends with the pure word of God. I want the pureness of your word. I want to approach it with a pure heart, undivided, unsullied. And I want your Holy Spirit to instruct me. I want to, which means that I, you better be ready, because that means you have to obey it. It has authority. I'm submitting myself to it. Not just mentally ascending to its information, but surrendering my life 
to living it. And this is the consistent testimony of God's word. Now, I've taken a little extra time in John, so I'm not going to take you into Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, particularly where it describes this future time when God will be the teacher of his people. He will not use the prophets. You see, it was the prophets that taught the people. Moses, you know, uh, Samuel. These prophets taught the people. God says, the time's going to come where you're not going to need the prophets to teach you because I will teach you directly. How? By these two things, the Holy Spirit and God's word. Now we have a completed word. Why is the time of prophecy ended in terms of, of proclaiming, thus says the Lord? Why is that season end? Because God's word has been completed. And now we have spirit residing in us. We have a, a, the word of God before us. And when these two are coming together in our lives, we are guided into truth. We have discernment. We have the information we need. And, and because we have submitted through salvation to God and submitting to the Holy Spirit, hopefully on a, on a daily basis, certainly when we come into God's Word, we should be submitted to Him. And now He can be at work and teach us. This is what we mean by being tender-hearted, which Peter uses the term pure-hearted. We have a pure desire after God's Word. Desire the pure milk of the Word, he's going to say, that you may grow thereby. Grow in what? Grow in our love for one another. So the basis of our foundation, our lateral relationship here, is going to be secured and become passionate as we spend more time in God's Word with the Holy Spirit. You, you, you try to spend time in God's Word without Him, you're going to pervert it. You try to spend time in the Holy Spirit without God's Word, you're going to pervert Him. And so you've got to keep these two together. And I don't care if they can find a few manuscripts that don't keep these together in, in 1 Peter uh, because it is amply taught in other passages of Scripture that it is through the Spirit, through the Word, that we're going to grow in our knowledge of God, in our faith, but in our love for one another. You see, I just don't have this passionate love for the brethren. I know, I, I know that they're my brothers in Christ. I know they've accepted Christ my Savior. I know that I have, I know that we're going to be in heaven forever and ever, but I just don't have a passion for them. Then I want to challenge you, you need to spend more time with Holy Spirit and God's Word together, and it will come. It will come. This is why we pray before we preach here. This is, and pray before we teach here, and, and we don't want to do it in our own strength, and we don't want to convince you using human argumentation. We want to use divine resources to engage you so that you can grow in your passion for your brotherly love for one another. You know it, but to really service your, to serve your brothers undeterred, um, without discouragement, without needing them to appreciate you and to thank you. If you want to really have longevity of ministry that is irrespective of what we normally associate with encouragement, you're going to have to have it derived from a passionate love for people. You have this uh, committed relationship with your children I mean, they're going to say nasty, nasty things to you. They're going to say, I hate you. 
right after you try to correct them and discipline them. They're going to say those kinds of things. Hopefully, they will feel guilt for that and recant it down the road somewhere. Hopefully, they will, will recognize the error of that, but children will, will be a very abusive to their parents. And we don't just stop loving them. Oh no, we recognize I got a lot of work and I'm going to need some help. Well, when you don't have enough passionate love for the brethren, you need a lot of work and you need some help. <laughs> that help is Holy Spirit. That's why it's called Comforter, the Helper, to come alongside you and to help you do the hard work of getting into God's Word and conforming your life more and more to Him. And it doesn't mean they change. Please notice that. Your passionate love for others is not dependent upon them changing. It's based upon you changing. And this is the foundation of all these relationships in 1 Peter, within the family. How do I become more passionate in my love for my wife? Not by saying, honey, if you would be do this, 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 I'd love you more. That is complete error. It is poppycock to use an old term. It is nothing. It's foolishness. That's the world. No, if, I, if my wife wants me to love her more, I need to love her more. I, it has to be me that changes. It's not that she has to do this, that, or cook like this, or, or wear these clothes, or, or treat me like this, then I'll love her. Oh, no. That's why we have a command in Scripture, husbands, love your wives. It's going to come up here in 1 Peter. It's the foundational relationship is, if I want to grow my love for you, it's not that you have to change to be worthy of it, because you'll never be, just like we're never worthy of God's love. Are we? Yet he loves us with an enduring, endless, fathomless love. So if you want to increase your love for one another, you're going to have to do the work yourself. Not put that onus on other people. Put it on yourself. I need to grow in my passion for my commitment to my brothers. And so he's going to talk about the relationship between parents and children, husbands, wives, servants, and, and masters. He's going to talk in these relationships within the church, between the leadership and the congregation. He's going to reference those. How do we make these passionate is we go to God's word by the Holy Spirit and do the whole hard work with his help, and we grow. We grow. The fault doesn't lie with those around you. They're just not very lovable. I'm surrounded by unlovableness. That's not going to work. If they would just be better. And there are too many pastors who aren't pastors today because they're waiting for their congregation to become lovable. But that doesn't drive ministry. What drives ministry is that I have grown by handling of God's word with the Spirit's help, and now I understand that my phileo relationship with you, built upon Jesus Christ, has to become passionate in my life, and that that is between me, God's word, and his Holy Spirit, and has very little to do with you. Almost nothing, except in its expression. I have to express it to you. It's silly to think I can keep it to myself, that I passionately have this 
brotherly love for you. Can't keep that kind of thing to yourself. And so Peter puts these together and notice that uh, this word of God, and we're going to talk next week about the abiding nature of it and the endurance of it and contrast it to man. We're going to be doing that next week, I think, rather than this week. There's no way I'm going to get into that. And, and by the way, it was planned that way, so I knew I wasn't going to get to that this week. But we have this instruction. We are called to this kind of love. And it's not something you, you can just conjure up inside of you. We are inundated by the world's definitions of passionate love. That somehow we can conjure it, we can, we can develop it, or, or it's for us to draw it out of each other or to, or to plant it inside of each other, and you cannot. The world is consistently 180 degrees wrong when it comes to relationships. You want a better relationship? Don't work on them, work on you. Don't try to find someone different to be passionate about you can become passionate about anybody if you choose to. Commit yourself. But you're going to have to do some work. It's hard work. Loving people is hard work. It is. You need help. God says, I've got it. I got you some help. But if you ignore that help, if you choose not to employ that help, if you choose to just let that resource sit there untapped, don't you blame the body of Christ. Don't you blame your coworkers. Don't you blame your family members. Don't you blame your church leadership. No. You're the one that hasn't tapped the resources God has provided you to grow in your passionate commitment to loving one another as brothers in Christ. Again, this is all derived from the concept of a purity in our heart. That is, undivided heart. Your heart's divided. You're going, the first thing I believe God's word and the Holy Spirit's going to address is that, undiv- is that divided heart. Because that is setting you up for wrath. The, the God does not tolerate a divided heart. That's why Israel went into captivity. That's why Judah went into captivity, um, is a divided heart. That's one of the reasons God says, you know, it's better for you not to be married because then you don't have that division. Well, I love my wife, my spouse, but I also love God, and now I have to choose between the two sometimes. That's why you should never marry an unbeliever. It's because now you ha- you're torn. You have a divided allegiance. You've made a commitment here and a commitment there. And sometimes they're in conflict to each other. That's why God warns you of these things. That's why God told, when they came back out of captivity, told Israel, get these relationships out of your life because they are rending your heart. It even happened to the wisest man. Don't think you're account smart this. Solomon's heart was divided. Because he entered into these relationships that drew him away from his relationship with God. So we want a better relationship with God. We're going to have to go in with a pure heart, with a pure soul, unspoiled, unsullied by our sin. This is the redemption, the born-againness 
Uh, with that, with corruptible seed, we're going to talk about the incorruptibility of God's word and of the seed of the message that we have had. But I want to very strongly in your mind link these two together. It's a very simple, direct message. I'm, I'm done now, if you've got it. You must have God's word with Holy Spirit. You must do the work with the help to strengthen your own passionate phileo love for others. If you want to make your phileo love passionate, you're going to have to do that work with his help. Can't conjure it yourself. Can't go over and ask for his help and never open your Bible and do the work. You've got to have them both. For the teaching ministry of the church, for the preaching ministry, for any ministry in the church, uh, the only way it's going to improve in you, that you're going to find more fulfillment there, is not by, if people would just be, be, if more people come and listen, if more people would just be responsive and nod their head and not sleep, if more people would just, would just uh, engage and participate, then it would be more fulfilling. No, it will not. Ministry becomes more fulfilling when we love more passionately our brothers. That's the secret. The world doesn't get it. But Peter did. Why do you think Jesus said to him, Peter, do you love me? Do you have some passion for me? And Peter says, well, I'm really committed to you, Lord. I've, I have a love. And he says, well, that's tremendous, but what's it going to be? It's feed my sheep. Minister. You love me? Minister. You want to have more fulfilling ministry? Work on what underlies your relationships with your brethren, and that is, do you have brotherly love for them on a level of passion that moves you to have to minister? I've got to do something for these people. Or I can't claim to be their brother and love them. This is what Peter is pulling together here by saying, love one another fervently, with a pure heart, through the Spirit, through the Word. We're going to study the Word now for a few weeks. We've studied the Spirit in the past. We're going to talk about Him occasionally, but this is really the focal point. Do not neglect the Spirit in your study of the Word. Do not neglect your Word and your engagement with the Spirit, that you might love one another. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your great love for us that knows no bounds on every level, that you are fully committed to our well-being and have put all resources to bear for our salvation and for our spiritual growth. We thank you for the great bounty, the, the wondrous, inexhaustive supply that you have provided for your saints to follow after you, to participate in your kingdom, and to have a right relationship with you. Lord, we know it is your will that we love one another. We know that. We've known that from the day we received your love, that these are our brethren. This is a new us. We are new creatures, new creations. That this now is a decision that is defining for us. Lord, you've taught us that. And you keep reminding us that. We can't spend time in your word and with your spirit without being reminded of it again and again and again. 
We thank you for that, that you taught us. Lord, we want that to become more passion in our life. We thank you for your people around us to encourage us in that. Your spirit still at work, your word still helping us to grow. Lord, our prayers that we might leave here more committed to allowing your spirit to transform our thinking, to guide us into truth, and that we might leave here committed to being your truth. That we might be reading your word. We might be committed to it on a daily basis and, and in small portions and large portions. That we might read it, meditate upon it, memorize it. The Lord, that we might put it into practice by the help of your Spirit. Lord, guard us from error. From studying your word with no guide, no light. Lord, we have seen great error come. Lord, help us to be guided by your Spirit. Lord, we also see the danger. We pray that you might, by your Spirit, convict us when we do not spend time in your Word and just want to be with you in some experiential Christianity with no hard work of engaging your truth. Lord, forgive us when we go into either of these Seasons of neglect. For one neglects your spirit, one neglects your word. Lord, help us to keep both centered in our life that we might grow. And Lord, our prayers that you might find us growing. To your honor, praise, and glory, and to the benefit of our family. Our Father, our brother, Lord Jesus, and our brethren seated around us here today and throughout all the earth. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.